Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Lord, well, I ask that you open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Luke. And we again have the opportunity to return to our study of this incredible record of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. If you are newer here with us this morning, we have been making our way through this gospel as a church, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we do come this morning to the ninth chapter and verses 27 through 36 in particular, although you should know that we will only get through about verse 29. And so with that, I do have much to say to you. And so just by way of introduction, let me read this this well-known but mysterious passage for you. This is an event in the life and ministry of Jesus that is commonly referred to as the transfiguration, just a profound but without question mysterious portion of Scripture. And so starting in verse 27, I'm going to read through verse 36. Here's what Luke records under the inspiration of the Spirit as a first century historian. Recording the words of Jesus, he says, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of these things which they had seen. As we begin uh, formally the Advent season and begin to celebrate that first Advent or the first coming of Christ uh, in God's providence this morning, I do not think that we could meditate on a greater text. And Lord willing, we will be in this passage for the next couple of weeks uh, leading up to our celebration service, which again is a time in which we explicitly remember that first advent of Jesus. We celebrate the fact that God himself has come to us in the flesh in the form of his son. And yet as we enter this time of year, we tend to approach it as a time that is typically characterized by meekness and mildness and tender thoughts of the baby Jesus. It's usually a time of sentimentality, and and I don't even mean that in a bad way. Uh, There is something, I think, unusually precious about this season. It is a time filled with anticipation, with joy, with hope, and especially because that is how Luke himself describes his time in chapter 2. It is a time in which we celebrate the humility of Christ, we celebrate the coming of God to man, We celebrate the faithfulness of God and his great promise to send forth his Messiah to rescue and redeem that which was lost. In fact, as you heard last week, the coming of Jesus as the Messiah was the very fulfillment of all that God had promised through his prophets of old. And they didn't necessarily understand what was meant. They didn't know what it would be. They had no idea really what it would look like. They didn't even know all the implications of such a promise. And yet God was faithful to that promise to send forth his Messiah, and as he was faithful to that promise to send him forth in the person of Jesus, there is a sense in which that fulfillment was unbelievably meek. We understand that it was a very mild and lowly entrance. 
He did not come on a horse. He did not come with a full host of heaven. Rather, he came as a baby born among poverty, placed into an animal feeding trough in the midst of profound weakness. And so this was humility. This was anything but a royal entrance of a great king. In fact, he came bearing all the marks of a servant. In fact, he even testified of himself in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was not a glorious entrance. This was humility. This was weakness. This was a willful choice to associate with that which is lowly. And yet, despite that, we also understand that his second coming will not be so humble. He will not come back as a servant. Rather, he will come back as the sovereign. He will come in might and power, ready to judge and reign over all things in the purity of his own righteousness. Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 through 16, here's how John describes that great return in the apocalypse. He said, and I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to judge the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will not come back in humility. He will come back in power and majesty and before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess and every nation tremble. But by and large, this first coming of his from the beginning to the end, we know and we understand was shrouded in weakness. It was without question the breaking in of the kingdom, but it was also not yet the kingdom in its fullness. That was something yet to come. And so the disciples saw glimpses. They saw shadows of the kingdom they witnessed its power and authority and the healings and the miracles of Jesus. In fact, they themselves performed miracles in the beginning of chapter 9. And yet the signs and wonders, as we've been seeing, were but mere shadows. They were, for the most part, a pointer or a sign of the kingdom to come, but they were not themselves the essence of the kingdom. Remember, healings and miracles are indicators. They function to testify of the power and the glory of the kingdom, but they themselves are not its substance. Rather, they simply bore witness. They, they pointed to something beyond themselves, to something greater. In fact, that is the very definition of a sign. They are not the essence. They are pointing away from themselves always toward the essence. And so what we have in this text before us, understand, is not a mere shadow or mere sign that in some way is pointing to the kingdom. Rather, this is an account in which for the first time, the disciples witness the very substance of the kingdom itself. This is a tremendous passage. This is a passage filled with, no doubt, mystery and wonder. I think my wife called it earlier this week, alien. It is the part in the gospel where all of a sudden gets a little bit X-Files on us. In fact, everything in the gospel to this point has seemed relatively normal. We can even understand miracles or simply a temporary suspension of natural law, the natural order, something, frankly, that's no big deal. If you're the God of the universe and you uphold all things by the very word of your power, but what is up with this thing where Jesus peels back his flesh? What is this event in which he begins to exude forth a blinding light, transcendent glory. This is an account in which he literally transfigures. He changes. In fact, as we're going to see, he literally morphs his physical body, but to reveal the glories of another world. And so what does this mean? What is the purpose of this in the ministry and timeline of Jesus' ministry? 
Again, a passage filled with awe and majesty, but also incredible mystery and wonder. And so by God's grace, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend our time looking at this passage. I do hope that it will help you to better understand both the deity and glory of Jesus Christ, which is the very purpose of why it's even in Luke. And so before we get into it, let me help to set the scene a little bit, starting here in verse 27. In order to understand the meaning of the transfiguration, it is critical to understand the context in which it has been placed. And so starting here in verse 27, notice again what Luke records. He states, recording the words of Jesus, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It is a mysterious statement. Many people have a lot of questions about it, but in order to understand it, you have to understand where we have been. And so just a little review, but remember in verse 20, Peter makes that great confession of Jesus as the Christ, he is the Messiah. Popular consensus at this point is that Jesus is simply a mere prophet in some way. And yet Peter here, speaking as a representative of the 12, he understands that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one that God has put forth in fulfillment of that messianic promise. And so in light of that confession, Jesus then makes a very shocking statement immediately in verse 22, where notice he says that he is indeed the Messiah, but that what that means is that he must suffer. And so remember, to the mind of the Jew, there was no way that God's Messiah could be a suffering Messiah. He was to be a military leader. He was to be a political leader of some sort who was to come and deliver the nation from the oppression of Rome. He was to lead the nation in victory and establish himself as God's great king over God's great nation. And so to hear the news that the Messiah was to suffer, and especially for the mouth of the one of whom you've just come to understand is the Messiah, that would have been an irreconcilable thought. That was a tremendous plot twist. In fact, in Matthew's version of this, he records Peter trying to rebuke Jesus for such a statement. Good old Peter. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, immediately after his confession, Matthew states this, and from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God, forbid it, for this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. In other words, Peter, again, he did come to see Jesus as the Christ. He did believe that Jesus was the Messiah in some way, but the problem is he had absolutely no idea what that was to mean. He had no idea as to what the role of the Christ was to be. He was still thinking that in some way this was temporary, this was nationalistic, this was militaristic. And so Jesus, understanding the true role of the Christ, that he was to suffer, that he was to be handed over by his very own people, that he was to be crucified, that he was to be raised again, and all of which, by the way, is the result of understanding Old Testament prophecy, what does Jesus do? He looks at Peter and he calls him Satan. Satan, a word that literally means adversary. And so just as the devil had been trying to usurp God's true plan from the very beginning, in a similar way here, Peter was acting like the devil. He was trying to get in the way of the fact that it was necessary that the Christ was to suffer according to God's Old Testament prophecy. And so Jesus rebukes Peter, who still has a very worldly perspective about the role of the Christ and what the kingdom was to be. And so not only did Jesus say that the Christ must suffer, which again would have been unthinkable, but then in an unbelievable statement of revelation, he goes on to say that any who should desire to follow him must also enter into a life of suffering. And if they desire to follow the Messiah, who again would be a suffering Messiah, the implication is that they too must endure that same experience. And that is what we saw last time. What we saw was that Jesus said that to truly confess him means that you must live in a certain way. 
It is to follow him down the Calvary road, which means that you must deny yourself and then take up your cross daily. Verse 23, you must take up the path of shedding that old identity as we saw and put on the new identity, the identity of this suffering Messiah. And so Jesus gave three motivations for that. He said, first of all, that to follow him is to receive eternal life. Verse 24, notice he said, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Second, to follow him is to receive eternal gain. Verse 25, for what is it profited to a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? Mark says his soul. So you can pursue anything that you want now. You can pursue it all now, but it is only temporary. And so we saw that it is a wise person who views life in terms of a financial column, eternally speaking where you are investing in certain things, you are willing to lose certain things now, but in order that you might gain eternally. And then third, to follow him is to receive eternal honors. Verse 26, notice, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of his holy angels. And so notice he piles up the terms there just to drive home the point. In other words, when he returns, either you're going to receive the full honors of heaven or you will receive the full shame of heaven. And so the point of Jesus giving these three motivations was to give the disciples an eternal perspective. So many decisions, so many pursuits. So many anxiety-ridden efforts are spent on such temporal fleeting realities. And so Jesus here wanted them to get their eyes off of the here and now, including what they thought the role of the Messiah was to be, and get them onto something eternal. And so that is what we saw. That was the message of Jesus. That is, in fact, the full gospel of Jesus. Salvation is not merely an issue of merely believing in Jesus in some quasi-spiritual way or merely at the level of some intellectual ascent. Rather, you must follow him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means first denying yourself and then shedding everything that you are, but for the purpose of being willing to follow him now on a suffering mission. If he is truly your Lord and master and suffered for a cause, then his point is that anyone following him ought not to expect anything different. And so for the first time in Luke, we see Jesus talk about himself as a suffering Messiah. But what's also important is that not only is it the first time he talks about his own suffering and crucifixion, not only is it the first time he talks about the fact that those who wish to follow after him must suffer, but we also have in verse 26 the very first statement of Jesus in all of the Gospel of Luke concerning his second coming, his second advent. And so this is a moment in which all kinds of new revelation begins to unfold for these disciples. Peter makes that confession, and then the floodgates of divine truth open up to them. And so from an Old Testament perspective, you have to understand the Jew had a very great expectation that this Messiah was to come. And again, you heard about that last week. They, they understood this from their Old Testament prophets. And so to pick up on the classic imagery, they saw the coming Messiah, sort of like a great mountain peak off in the distance. They understood the Messiah was promised. They believed that he, he was to come. They, they knew their God. They knew that he was always faithful to his promises. And so they believed that this messianic figure would indeed come to them. And so again, they didn't know when that would be. They didn't know what it would look like necessarily. They did understand that it was to be connected to the establishing of God's kingdom in some way. And so they believed that this figure would come. But in terms of the specifics, they had no idea as to what that was to look like. They, they were just looking for the Messiah and whatever that was to mean. In fact, they just assumed that when he'd come, they'd somehow be able to recognize it. And so they did not think that he would come meek. They did not think that he would come so mild. Rather, they thought that he'd come as a warrior and establishing conquest to usher in the kingdom. And so what they didn't see so clearly is that the coming of the Messiah was to be a sort of event complex. 
if I can put it that way. In fact, this is something that theologians refer to as telescoping. This is the idea that as you draw nearer to that mountain peak, so to speak, that, that mountain just called the coming of the Messiah, as you begin to get closer, you begin to discover that that singular mountain peak from a distance is actually made up of two smaller peaks. And so it was never that the Messiah was supposed to come and just establish the kingdom immediately, though that's sort of what it looked like from an Old Testament perspective. Rather, he was to come, but in what is known as an event complex. He was to come first for the purpose of suffering, but then later to establish his kingdom. And you can't really separate those two, even though it's been at least 2,000 years. And so again, from an Old Testament perspective, it is seen as a singular event. It's just the coming of the Messiah. But from a New Testament perspective, where we now have more revelation, we understand this to be an event complex. This is an event that was to unfold through a series of sub-events. And so from our perspective and chronological position within redemptive history, we can see those two separate peaks of that single mountaintop very clearly. We have the first advent, and then we have the second. But from an Old Testament point of view, where they're still a long way off, they, they understood the coming of the Christ to just be a one-time deal. They didn't understand the unfolding of an event complex. They could only understand this messianic age as a time of immediate victory, a time of immediate reigning from the throne. And so in a certain sense, you can't really blame the short-sightedness of these disciples. You can't really blame Peter for wanting to rebuke the idea of a crucified Messiah. But here in verse 26, we have the very first mention of a second coming. And notice, again, he will not come back so mild, but this time in glory, as he says, and not only his glory, but also the glory of his father and the glory of the holy angels. And so the assumption there, speaking of honor and shame, is that this will be a time of tremendous judgment. This will be a time of loss and reward. And so in light of all that, he then states these words, verse 27, and this is where we pick it up for this morning. Notice he says, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, in light of everything that I just said, and especially verse 26 being a reference here to the second coming and bringing in the fullness of the kingdom, understand that there are no less than at least five views as to what this verse means. So what does it mean that they're going to see the kingdom of God before they taste death? It's been 2,000 years at this point, so what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, first of all, some view this as a statement in reference to the miracles of Jesus. Miracles, of course, are some kind of foretaste of the kingdom. They're a harnessing of the power of the kingdom. And so some see this as a reference to Jesus' ministry and miracles. But that would be somewhat out of place because they've already seen his miracles and they themselves have performed miracles. Some view it as a reference to his resurrection. Others see it as a reference to his ascension into glory. Others see it as a reference to the fall of the temple, which took place in 70 AD. That, that is when the, the false kingdom of Israel, the false religion of Judaism was to fall, uh, symbolized there in the collapse of its central symbol, which was the temple. And so God at that point, they say, was to establish his true kingdom and bring it in in a spiritual way and specifically through the church. And of course, some disciples would have still been alive in 70 AD. That is when the temple actually fell. In fact, some would have been martyred, um, which is why Jesus say that Jesus says here, or they say that Jesus says here that only some of those standing here will see the kingdom before tasting death. And then others see that it's talking about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They say that this is a time where the disciples will live in true kingdom power. They'll live in a time in presence of the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a time, of course, in which the gates of hell will not prevail against God's kingdom, which they understand to be the church. And so there are many views. There are many variegated opinions on this, but the best way to interpret it is to understand it in its immediate context. Remember, when it comes to Bible interpretation, context is king, and so only theologians, frankly, could come up with five or six views that seem to ignore the obvious. 
And so in order to understand this, all you have to do is just keep reading. What does he mean here by seeing the kingdom of God and in a time before they would taste death? This is a very clear statement, I think, regarding what is about to happen. This is a statement in reference to the transfiguration. In fact, notice, he says that only some will see the kingdom of God. Of course, being a reference to these inner three, namely Peter, James, and John, verse 28. Remember, Jesus at this point is is talking to a group, but only the, the inner three, as we see, will see this transfiguration. And so they're about to see glory. They're about to see the kingdom of God, but in its substance, in its essential purity. And that is important to understand because this comes right on the heels of Jesus having not only just declared to them that he was about to be killed, but also that they too were about to suffer. And so what Jesus wants to do, and again, the purpose of the transfiguration event here, is to sort of bolster their faith. He wants to give them confidence. And you see the connection here between what was just said and what we're about to see in this phrase here that in just eight short days, these events took place. And so he doesn't want to give them just shadows and pointers of the kingdom. Rather, at this juncture, he wants them to see the very essence of the kingdom. He wants them to see the essence of kingdom glory. And so that is what is happening in this text. That is the purpose of the transfiguration. This is not just a random event in which Jesus turns into an alien. Rather, this is a critical moment of divine revelation in which Jesus reveals his glory and testifies to these men as to who he truly is. And he is not just a man. He is not just a mere prophet as Israel was viewing him. Rather, he is the fullness of deity. He is the very radiance of divine glory. He is, in fact, the very fullness of God himself. And so just a tremendous moment. This this is a moment in which he wants to shape these men. These men would face nearly insurmountable situations. They were to walk in the steps of their suffering Lord. They were to model him in his persecutions as they'd be key figures in the launch of the church and the spread of the gospel. And so in order to endure and persevere, he wanted to give them here a preview of heaven, preview of glory, a preview of why they ought to be faithful in walking down this path of suffering. There was glory to come that would be worth the loss of all things temporary. And so there is much to say regarding this passage. And so instead of just plowing through it, I thought we'd take our time during this Advent season to meditate upon the glories of Christ. In fact, that is exactly what this passage is about. This is a text in which the glory of Christ is revealed to us in four ways. And so we're only going to get through the first one this morning, and the next time, Lord willing, we'll take a look at some of the others. But look with me, if you would, to verse 28. And so notice, number one, we see here what I'll just call the radiant metamorphosis, verses 28 through 29. This is the metamorphosis, 28 through 29. Notice Luke states, and some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Now, again, you understand by now that whenever Luke records Jesus pulling away for the purpose of prayer, it is always right before something significant is about to happen. That is how he marks a very important event in the gospel. And so here Jesus, again, notice, pulls away. This time he takes Peter, James, and John with him. Again, these inner three of the 12. Remember in verses 18 through 20, he pulls away to pray in Caesarea Philippi, and there he takes all 12. He leaves the larger crowd and brings his true disciples with him, these 12 elect or 12 chosen, whom he's just chosen in chapter 6. But here in verse 28, notice he brings the inner three, these three who would serve as that close inner circle. He wanted to reveal certain truths to them alone. And so notice Jesus takes them up, and then in verse 32, Luke states that the disciples fall asleep. And that is something, by the way, that is not uncommon of these men. 
especially just before something significant is about to happen. Think of the time in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus there on the night of his arrest is laboring in prayer while these men sleep. And so in somewhat typical fashion, we see here Jesus praying while his disciples fall asleep. Perhaps a theme I'll develop at some point that is a very significant issue. And so in verse 29, Luke states in plain and unadorned language, again, typical of any first century historian, notice he states, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And so you have here a situation which notice that as Jesus is praying in some way, his face literally begins to change. And it's not merely that his face begins to glow or just light up a little bit. Rather, the language here is that his face literally transforms. In fact, Luke states that it became different. That that is the word heteron from which we get hetero. It's literally that his face began to take on a completely different appearance. In fact, Matthew uses the Greek verb uh, metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. That, that is the very word, in fact, in Matthew's account that we translate as to transfigure. It is to undergo a, a metamorphosis, literally a completely or, or holistic change, transformation. In fact, when you think about the idea of the concept of metamorphosis, perhaps you think of butterflies. In fact, think about it, but there is just no way that when you look at a caterpillar that's just barely creeping along the ground that you could naturally conclude that somehow that little thing is going to crawl up into a cocoon and become a beautiful butterfly, much less sprout wings and fly away. And so in order for that to happen, what needs to take place? What has to happen? Well, it has to undergo a metamorphosis. There has to be a a literal holistic transformation of its very form. And so its entire function has to become different. Its, its structure is changed. And so here, when Luke says that his face became heteron, the point to understand is that his face became other than. He was in some way transformed, transfigured, to look completely different from an external perspective. In fact, Matthew also includes that his face shone bright as the sun, as he says. And so this was not a dim glow. This was not just a little halo over his head. Rather, this was something blinding. This was something that no doubt would have split forth the darkness in this place. In fact, remember, they were up in the mountains somewhere. There were no lights. Certainly, this was a day in which there was no electricity. And perhaps they had some dim light from the stars in a day in which there was less ambient light. But regardless, this would have been something stunning. This was not human. This was otherworldly. This, frankly, would have been frightening. And so understand that this is a very dramatic scene. The disciples have only known Jesus as human. He talked as they talk. He ate as they ate. He slept as they slept. Now, they have seen him do some pretty amazing things, but even they themselves have done some amazing things. And so from an external perspective, Jesus to them is fully human. His morphe or his form was that of a human. There was not yet any talk of him being divine at this point. And so here, in in literally an unbelievable way, he metamorphs, his, his form or his morphe changes. And so as one man said, at this point, the disciples knew that there was a kingdom power in him. They knew that he had a supernatural energy that came through him and that he even had the ability to delegate that power, but none of that was yet in a physical form. And so understand that Jesus did not walk around with a glow around him all the time. Rather, from all external perspectives, he was like everybody else. He was just human. And because, again, he was fully human. He was fully divine, but at the same time in that mystery known as the hypostatic union, he was also fully human, and so they've not yet seen his divinity. In fact, it wasn't even a category they had of him. They have seen his humanness. That is all that they have seen. They've certainly seen what his divinity produces, but they can't necessarily attribute that to divinity. They just thought God was working through him in some way. And so from their perspective, he was just a human. And so his divinity was hidden. It was 
shrouded in his humanity. And so here, his face now literally changes. And not only does his face change, and not only does it shine forth this supernatural light, but notice Luke then states in verse 29 that even his clothing became white and gleaming. He says that it was Lucas and exostropto. Notice a doubling of the terms to just capture the drama. It was, again, Lucas. That is to say there was a brilliance to his clothing. There was a shimmering. There was a dazzling light. It was also exostropto, a word used to describe the flashing forth of lightning. So, so this is a glistening event. This had energy. This had brilliance. And notice the way that it is described here. This is something which was coming forth from Jesus himself. This was not like Moses who, after seeing God, had to put a veil over his face because he was reflecting the divine glory. Rather, this was glory or a form that was exuding forth from within him. This was in some way his own essence. This was his own substance. That is the point. This was a literal peeling back of the human veil, that physical shroud, but to expose just a little bit of what he truly was. This, is what, this was a revelation of what was in him. And so what is this? What is this revealing about Jesus? Well, again, this is telling us in unambiguous terms in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is the fullness of God. That is the point. And again, this is not something shining upon him or illuminating him in some way. Rather, this was, again, coming from within him. This was a light protruding from him. And the idea of light, by the way, is a very important theme in Scripture. Light always characterizes God's essence. In fact, John uses the concept of light synonymously with the idea of eternal life. And so in some way, God has manifested his essence in this physical creation through the form of light. And so in some way, eternal life, which again is, is, is the very quality or, or kind of life of God's existence. It's not merely speaking of living forever. It's certainly not less than that, but more so it's speaking of his quality of life. And so when the existence of God is translated into the physical order, it comes over to us in the form of light. In fact, that is exactly what John picks up on when he records Jesus saying that I am the light of the world. Or in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, he states that God is light. That, that is an ontological statement. That is, it is speaking of his very essence, his very being. And so God is light, and in him there is no darkness. In fact, that's even how John starts out his entire epistle, and, and no doubt drawing from what he experienced here in Luke chapter 9 in the transfiguration. He states, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld with our hands and handled concerning the word of life, that being Jesus. Verse 2, and the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father but was manifested to us. He was made known to us. And then he says in verse 5, and God is light. And so again, he is not described here in terms of his flesh. Rather, he is described in terms of light. It says in chapter 2 and verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the, the true light is already shining. Verse 9, the one who says that he is in the light, that is in Christ, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. He abides in Christ, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so again, there's a very great contrast in scripture between light and darkness, especially in John's writings. And because again, it goes back to this very moment in Luke chapter nine. John had seen the very essence of his form, the very essence of his glory, and it was manifested to him in the form of light. And so again, what, what is this saying? What is 
Jesus trying to reveal to these disciples, well, first of all, that he is the Messiah, but second of all, and perhaps most important, that he is also the very fullness of God. And so he has not come as a mere temporary political leader who merely possesses the anointing of God in some way, like the prophets did of old. Rather, he himself is the very fullness of Yahweh. In fact, anytime that God... The invisible God is manifest to us. He is always made manifest to us through the second person of the Trinity. In fact, let's just do a little bit of theology. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We'll just spend a few minutes here and then finish out the text next time, Lord willing. But this is that very famous passage, very well-known passage in Isaiah. This is that tremendous revelation given to the prophet before he was commissioned to go and do a very difficult job. Remember, he was commissioned to preach repentance to a very unrepentant people. God tells him that he is to go. They will not listen to him, but that he is to go anyway. And so before he is commissioned, God gives him this profound vision of holiness. In fact, just like Jesus wants to strengthen these disciples before he commissions them, God here reveals some incredible things to strengthen Isaiah. And so again, Isaiah chapter 6, I'm just going to walk through the text and make some observations for you, but notice how it begins, verse 1. He states, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. So notice the contrast. King Uzziah was, for the most part, a decent king, reigned for many, many years in the southern nation of Judah, but then in his final days, he grew extremely prideful. And so you can read about that story in Second Chronicles, but God essentially kills him as a result of his pride. And so notice again, the form of, or the contrast, he says that in the year of King Uzziah's death, namely the earthly king, the sinful king, the prideful fallen human king, Isaiah says that he saw the Lord, the Adonai, that is the true sovereign king sitting on the throne. And so Isaiah, in some way, is brought up into the very throne room of God and encounters this terrifying scene where he's brought into the midst of pure holiness, where he is forced to cast his eyes upon that which is utterly other from him. And so notice what he describes. What does he see? He says, and I saw Adonai, Yahweh, the true king, sitting on the throne in his heavenly courtroom, and the train of his robe was filling the temple, that is, a present participle, meaning that it just keeps on filling. So historically, the longer the train on a king's robe, the more majesty he had acquired. And so here, notice, he doesn't just fill the temple, rather it just keeps on filling the temple. And so he is unmatched in his majesty. Verse 2, and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, And with two, he flew. A a seraph, if you didn't know, it's an angelic being. It's part of that spiritual realm that we frankly don't know much about. But these are a class of creature that, quite frankly, would make you want to hide. In fact, the root word there of seraph literally means burning one. And so this is a class of creature that, in some way, is made of an inextinguishable fire, And notice as well in verse 4, this is a being for which when they speak, they they literally cause the foundations of the threshold of the temple to tremble and fill it with smoke. And so notice how this creature is described. Isaiah says that they each have six wings. With two, they cover their face, meaning that they live in a, a, a perpetual state of refusing to look upon God, this one who is holy. In other words, not even they, these burning ones, can look upon God lest they be burned up. Perpetually in his presence, perpetually needing to conceal themselves. With two, they cover their feet. This is a description describing the fact that they don't dare to determine their own path or in some way express their own will or make their own way. Rather, this is a creature that exists for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to serve the king in the very moment for which he may call upon them. And then with two, they flew. 
symbolizing the fact that there is only one in this scene who reserves the right to sit, and that is the king and the king alone. Notice he sits in this courtroom, he sits at the center, he sits on his throne, and he sits in complete and utter majesty. And so he is the point. He is the center of all that is happening. And then verse 3, notice, and one of the seraphim called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts or Lord of Yah- uh, Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is what I want you to see. In fact, this is perhaps the greatest confession in all of scripture as to the nature and the character of not only who, but also what God is. And because you will find no statement ever concerning the person of God that is thrice repeated. So you have one statement in John's epistle concerning John's onto- or God's ontology, that is his, his being or his essence, that is that which makes God God, and that is that God is love. So we, we saw that he is light in the gospel, but that he is love in the epistle. But nowhere, think about this, nowhere in scripture is God ever declared to be love, 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 much less love, love. Nowhere is he light, light, light. Nowhere is he said to be just, just, just. Like nowhere is he even said anywhere in scripture to be grace, grace, grace. Certainly nowhere he's said to be wrath, wrath, wrath. But he is said to be holy, holy, holy. And what's important to understand about the Hebrew is that this is written in what is known as the superlative. That that is, it is meant to communicate the highest degree or the highest in a particular category. It is is meant to communicate the greatest extreme. And so in the Hebrew, the way that you would write something in the superlative is by repeating the noun two times. So if you wanted to say, for example, something is the purest gold, you would say that it is gold, gold. Or if you wanted to say, for example, that David was the greatest king, you would say that he is king, king. In fact, it's sort of like in the New Testament where we have written king of kings and lord of lords. You're the greatest in your category. You're super. You're, you're the superlative. And so what is so shocking about this scene is that in order for these creatures to even begin to express the nature of God's holiness, notice it is something that must be thrice repeated. And what makes that, I think, so devastating, so incredible, is that if you know what the word holy means, then you know that it means to be other, to be set apart. In other words, the only time that you use the word holy is when you need to describe something, but for which there is nothing to describe it. If you are holy, then by definition, you are unlike anything else. And so there is nothing to which you might be likened. And so you need to be labeled as holy. And so the only way to describe God in this passage is by saying that he is holy, that that he is unlike anything else. There's nothing to describe him, nothing to characterize him. He's just other. And so to say that something is holy, holy, twice repeated, and hear this, that is to say that this is something that is other of something that is already other. In other words, you can't get much more separate than that. You are the holiest of the holy. And yet notice, these seraphim here don't say it two times, rather they can't help but to confess it three times. That is to say that God is the holiest of that which is the holiest of that which is already holy. Whatever that means. In fact, notice there is nothing in this scene that actually describes the essence or the person of God himself in terms of his physical attributes, in terms of his characteristics, He goes into great detail here regarding the physical features of these seraphim, these spiritual beings who have somehow been made visible to him, and yet notice there is nothing in here at all mentioned about the person of God himself. And why? Well, because again, there is nothing to which he might be likened. There is no physical reality or visible essence that can even kind of describe what God is like. 
And so all that Isaiah can do is record the eternal confession of these beings who, again, his literal job and the reason for which they've even been, been created is to cry out day and night without ceasing this perpetual confession. And so what is this saying? What, what does this confession mean? This is a very strange statement. Because notice, these seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You'd think that they'd say something like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his holiness. That's not what they say. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, which means then that there is a connection between God's holiness, which... Again, if you didn't know, his holiness is it's his intrinsic worth, it's his invisible intrinsic value. It's it's literally that which makes God God. In other words, it's it's his invisible essence, it's his essential nature, which again is unlike anything that could possibly be created, and so it's three times removed from anything that describes it. In fact, notice these seraphim, these beings who were created in such a way that they can actually exist in his presence and not be incinerated, which is perhaps why they're described here as being made of some kind of fire. This is an unbelievable class of creature. In fact, these are creatures which are sinless. These are powerful. They themselves possess a sense of glory, and yet notice they perpetually ascribe to God that he is utterly separated from even them. Which, of course, means then that holiness, whatever it is, has to be something far more than the mere absence of sin. Rather, the holiness of God is a category of otherness that is so far beyond description or comprehension. And when you get to it, That then is the intrinsic essence of what God is, whatever that means. And so again, notice, they don't say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his holiness. It's holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so what is the connection between God's Holiness and God's glory. Well, the glory of God, hear this, the glory of God is what happens when the holiness of God goes public. It's what happens when the invisible and intrinsic divine essence of what God is is in some way made manifest. And so whatever Isaiah saw, what he was seeing was the visible manifestation of the invisible holiness of God. In other words, what he saw was glory. Holiness made manifest. And so take that image and turn with me now quickly to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This is a passage in which Jesus is describing and predicting his own death. Very important passage. And so in John chapter 12, starting in verse 35, notice what Jesus says. And notice the language again of light. Verse 35 of John 12, he states, Jesus therefore said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. So while you have the light, so, while, uh, so walk while you have the light so that that darkness may not overtake it. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. So while you have the light, again, talking about himself, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light, sons of God. In these things, Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. Verse 37, and though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And why? Well, so that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their ears and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, perceive with their hearts, and be converted, and I heal them. Strange statement. But here it is. 
These things Isaiah said, why? Because he, Isaiah, saw his glory and he, Isaiah, spoke of him. I tell you often that the smallest words are often the most important words. And so here, we've got to get the pronoun straight. And so notice, who is the he and the his in verse 41? Well, if you follow it back to the nearest antecedent, that is again to that to which the pronoun refers, then the he and the his here in verse 41 are in reference to who? Jesus. In other words, who then is John saying that Isaiah actually saw? Well, not just God in some vague way, not even the Father, rather the one sitting on the throne, according to John, was Jesus Christ himself. That is to say, it was the pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. And so again, I can't trace it out for you, but anytime the invisible God is made manifest, what you're seeing is in fact Yahweh made manifest in his fullness, but always through the second person of the Trinity. So what is the point of all this? Why do I say all this? Well, simply to say that Jesus himself is the fullness of Yahweh. In other words, while we understand God to be Trinity and His Father, Son, and His Spirit, we must never forget that we serve but one God. Jesus is not part of God. He is not merely a third of God. Rather, He Himself is the fullness of God. And so whenever God goes public, what you have is Christ. What you have is the second person of the Trinity in the fullness of Yahweh expressed. It is the transcendent holiness or invisible essence of the invisible God put on display. And so again, what is Christ? What is Jesus? Well, Jesus, and hear this, Jesus is in and of himself the very glory of God. Christ is what you get when God's holiness or his, in, his intrinsic nature, his intrinsic worth and value is made known. And so back in our actual text this morning in Luke chapter 9, I say all of this only to say that this then is exactly what these disciples are seeing in the transfiguration. There's a metamorphosis that happens. This is a situation in which Jesus Christ, the very God-man himself, the very fullness of the holy God who has taken on flesh, literally unveils his incarnation. That is, he literally unfleshes himself. And for what purpose? Well, to reveal the invisible holiness of what he is through visible glory. And so we are out of time this morning, but what I want you to notice is that at this most magnificent revelation, what is the response of the disciples? We'll notice absolutely nothing. They are sleeping. There's a time to sleep and there is a time to be awake. And so next time, Lord willing, we're going to see him wake up. And as you can imagine, waking up to something like this creates within them some tremendous confusion and emotion. And of course, Peter being Peter, he will certainly be Peter. And so there is still much to examine in this passage. This is just the beginning. And so next time, Lord willing, we'll see three ways in which this text reveals the glory of God. And it is, I think, unbelievably fascinating. And so what I would say to you in closing, because I have zero conclusion here for you, is so don't be like these disciples. Make sure you don't sleep in. Come back. Let's pray. And Father, what a, what a wonderful truth to dwell upon. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you are a God who, while you are utterly holy and set apart and transcendently distant from us, you have still purposed to come to us. Not merely for the purpose of making yourself known, but to actually rescue us and deliver us from our own sin. 
And so in Wonder of Wonders, you took on flesh. You condescended from your rightful place on the throne to come and redeem us. And not merely to redeem us, but to then make us holy, to set us apart, to make us utterly other than what we are. And so we thank you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his faithfulness. It is difficult to comprehend such holiness, taking on such meekness, such weakness. And yet that is what we celebrate in this season. Celebrate you coming to us in the person of your son. And so I do pray for this church that we might have a fuller understanding of what it cost you to redeem the sinner. I pray for any who may not yet confess you for who you are, that they might humble themselves, that they might, as your prophet says, tremble under your word. So may you be honored with the lives of these people. May the obedience of this church be a fragrant aroma before you as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And may you accept our words of praise as we now turn to song. In Jesus' name, amen.